Hey, I'm Sailor. It's another episode of Metal Rock and Whiskey. And tonight, we will be going into the Wayback Machine. I'm so happy Cause today found my friends in my head Yes, we will. And for the listeners that might be new to the show, we sometimes compare two albums from one artist against each other. We discuss, usually argue, and very professionally debate the merits. And in the end, only one album or artist reigns supreme. That's right, Matt. Uh, we were on a streak there for a while, but tonight we will be skipping the battle so that we can attack the subject of Nirvana and probably debate their importance on underground music's visibility and the grunge scene as a whole. And I'm really, really looking forward to this discussion tonight, guys. I think I just have an inkling that there might be a debate on our hands. Oh, what makes you think that? I just have this forebodingness that (laughs) is coming over me. But I know I have been looking forward to covering Nirvana for some time now, so I'm excited to get started. All right, and before we do get into it, as always, we like to talk about um, what we're drinking on the show. So would you guys, how about Matt, would you like to care to share? Would you like to care to share? (laughs) I would care to share. (laughs) But would you like to care to share? Would you care to share? I would care to share, if I dare. But you've got to like it. (laughs) Well... I kind of fucking shit the bed on this one because I'm not drinking my whiskey segment from Monday. Although that's it, you're fired. I Get ex- out. Hey, 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 <laughs> hey. Although I expect you listeners to go out and spend a hundred dollars to buy the Dora, uh <laughs> double cask. I really have to start bringing the price down on some of these uh, whiskey pairings for our yes. budget-friendly listeners. But what can I say? I have expensive taste. Um, but so no, tonight I, <laughs> tonight I am drinking uh, Hibiki Twelve Year. Oh my lord! Can you can you get a budget <laughs> whiskey anywhere this week? Hey, when I bought this, it was still readily available and fairly affordable. So mm-hmm. what what's happened to it since then is not my issue. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, if you're gonna find it somewhere because they don't really make it right now anymore, it was the rest of it was blended in with Hibiki Harmony. It's probably going to run you 150 bucks. <laughs> so yeah, but one of my all-time favorites. Uh, if if you know if you're a whiskey collector or you're you're a Japanese whiskey guy like myself who really enjoys it, um, if you can find it and you're willing to spend the money, grab it because they are few and far between as the months go by. Yes, they are. Yep. Pretty delicious. Uh, So I am drinking my own blend today. Um, Sometimes when my bottles get really low, instead of killing it, I'll blend them together. And I used to do this to create, I used to do this also to like train my palate and teach myself about flavors and notes. And um, so I was drinking this the other day with the girls. I'm pretty good for a girl. And um, I've got a little bit left. So it is a blend of Woodford's Double Oak and Evan Williams Black. And then I put in just a touch of Wild Turkey Rye in there. 
And it just it turned it just tastes like a two hundred bottle of whiskey. It's oh, so yeah. it good. Sounds like it it would be a decent combination. It's very good. I think it just hits all the note. You get lots of sweetness. You're getting the woodsiness. You get the spice from the rye. Um, you get all the fruits that you want. You get all all of the nuts that you want and the banana and cherry. So I really like it. And I like I like to taste the cask in a lot of my, especially in my bourbons. I really like woodsiness. So, yeah. That's Interesting. All right. Interesting trio. Evans, yeah. Evans Turkey Reserve, I guess. Evans Reserve Turkey. <laughs> um, turkey Williams Oak. <laughs> turkey <Okay>. Williams. <laughs> turkey Williams Oak. <laughs> or Double well, Turkey Williams. That's it. Double Turkey Williams. Double. Nice. <laughs> sounds like a sounds like a high school bully from the 1950s. Write that down. Yeah. Double Turkey. Yeah, Williams. Turkey Williams. <laughs> Don't mess with that guy. <laughs> Well, or his twin brother. <laughs> I am drinking something a little more pedestrian than those two, but uh, still, actually, it is a blend. It is a blend. Um, it's a blend of bourbon and rye, um, created by I believe it was one Mister Trey Zoller and one Mister Edward Lee, Chef oh, Edward oh. Lee, a little um, Jefferson's Chef's, Chef's collaboration. Oh. I know it's it's been a while since I've had this bottle out, so I figure I'd get it out again for, t- for tonight and have a little bit. I thought you were going to say, "Alright." Is that 2016 or 2017? Uh, I believe this is the 2017 release. Okay. The second release. Delicious. Yep. So that's there what I go. have, and that's what I'm enjoying. Yum. All right. Well, and it's fairly affordable too. I think I picked this up for about. Was it just a little over forty dollars for the bottle? Like forty two, forty three right, bucks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, thought, not too bad. I thought you were gonna say borai for a second, but that's more expensive, obviously. That's more expensive. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you call that pedestrian. I yeah, don't exactly. Call yeah. Olaf pedestrian either. Jeez, some pretty fine juice. All right, are you guys ready to attack the topic of the night? Let's do ready it. To attack it. All right. Okay, let's start at the beginning, shall we? So, Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic were two guys that met while attending Aberdeen High School, although they never connected, according to Cobain. They eventually became friends, though, because they practiced in the same space, which was also, at the time, used by the band The Melvins. Cobain had to persuade Chris, and I'm going to start calling him Chris by his first name, not his last, because Novoselic is pain in the ass to say, Um, So Cobain asked Chris to form a band. Cobain gave him a demo tape of his project (laughs) Fecal Matter. It took three years or yeah, three years um, after the two first met for Chris to tell Cobain that he had finally listened to Fecal Matter and decided he would like to start a band together. So the pair then recruited Bob McFadden on drums. But after a month of this lineup, it fell apart. In early 1987, Cobain and Chris recruited drummer Aaron Burkhard. So the band went through a series of names, starting with Skid Row and including Fecal Matter and Ted Ed Fred. 
So just a side note, the band we know now as Skid Row formed in 1987 in New Jersey and was signed to their first record deal in 1988. (laughs) Their first album, 18 to Life, was released on January 24th of 89. Bleach by Nirvana was released in June of 89. Close call there. I wonder who would have beat it to the punch. I have a feeling Nirvana would have took the name, I think. Mm -hmm. I think their trajectory was a little bit quicker, but who knows. Anyway, the group finally settled on the name Nirvana, which Cobain had chose because he said, I wanted a name that was kind of beautiful or nice and pretty instead of a mean, raunchy punk name like the Angry Samoans. With Chris and Cobain having moved to Tacoma and Olympia, Washington, the two temporary lost contacts temporarily lost contact with Burkhart. They were practicing with Dave Crover of the Melvins and Nirvana recorded its first demos in January of 88. So in early 88, Crover moved to San Francisco. Wah, wah, more lineup changes, but he recommended Dave Foster to the band as his replacement on drums. Foster's tenure with Nirvana lasted only a few months. During a stint in jail, he was replaced <laughs> by Burkhardt again, who himself didn't stay with the band. Um, Apparently, he told Cobain one day he was too hungover to practice, and Cobain was like, you're out of here. So (laughs) Cobain and Chris put an ad in the Seattle uh, music publication called The Rocket, and they were seeking a replacement drummer, which attracted lots of people, but they weren't interested in any of them. Apparently, they were just a bunch of freaks. I don't know what freaks mean to those guys. So, <laughs> <laughs> saying something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, meanwhile, a mutual friend introduced them to Chad Channing. Who the fuck names their kid Chad Channing? That's just mean. Anyway, the three musicians agreed to jam together. The drummer would later say they never actually said, okay, you're in, but Channing played his first show with the group that May. Nirvana released its first single, a cover of Shocking Blue's song Love Buzz, in November of 88 on the Seattle indie label Sub Pop. I should say famous indie label. The following month, the band began recording their debut album, Bleach, with a local producer, Jack Endino. So uh, if you don't know the name, Endino worked with many of the grunge bands of the time, such as Mud Honey, Soundgarden, The Screaming Trees, L7, and... Bleach was highly influenced by the heavy rock sounds of the Melvins and Mud Mud Honey, 1980s punk rock, and the 1970s heavy metal, like black sabbath chris said in a 2001 interview with rolling stone that the band had played a tape in their van while they were on tour i guess it was the really one of the only tapes they had um on one side it had an album by the smithereens and on the other side an album by celtic frost and so that combination probably influenced what (laughs) they played yeah that's a fucking weird combination (laughs) so but i I could see it i mean i guess yeah. yeah So the recording session sent them back a whopping $606.17, which was supplied by Jason Everman, who was subsequently brought into the band as a second guitarist. Everman did not actually play on the album, but he did receive a credit on Bleach because, according to Chris, they wanted to make him feel more at home in the band. Yeah, and he just fucking bankrolled your album. Jesus. 
just before right, yeah just before <laughs> the album's release nirvana insisted on signing an extended contract with sub pop making that they were the first band to do that with the label Following the release of Bleach in June of 89, Nirvana embarked on its first national tour, and the album became a favorite of college radio stations and any um, type of underground music outlet. Apparently, Everman and the rest of the band were not getting along during the tour, so Nirvana canceled the last few dates and drove right back to Washington. Although Sub Pop did not promote Bleach as much as other releases, it was a steady seller and had initial sales of 40,000 copies. That's fucking huge for a little unknown band that's not getting promotion back then so however cobain was very upset by the lack of the label's support promotion and distribution in late 89 the band recorded the blue ep with producer stephen fisk fisk is another renowned grunge producer he he produced many of the same bands as andino did There was an interview in late 89 where Cobain noted that the band's music was changing. He said the early songs were really angry, but as time goes on, the songs are getting poppier and poppier as I get happier and happier. The songs are now about conflicts in relationships, emotional things with other human beings. So we're now in April of 1990. The band began working with with producer Butch Vig at Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, on the recordings for the follow-up to Bleach. During the sessions, Cobain and Chris became disenchanted with Channing's drummings, and Channing expressed frustration at not being actively involved in songwriting, so Channing left the band. That July, the band recorded the single Silver with Mud Honey drummer Dan Peters. Nirvana then asked Dale Crover to fill in on drums for a small tour with Sonic Youth that August. September of 1990... Buzz Osborne of the Melvins introduced the band to Dave Grohl, who was looking for a new band to join after the breakup of his previous band, Scream. So they auditioned Grohl and later said, we knew in two minutes that he was the right drummer. Yeah, you're goddamn right. So now the band is disenchanted with Sub Pop, and with the smart studio sessions generating interest, Nirvana decided to look for a deal with a major label, since no indie label could afford to buy out their contract. Sonic Youth's Kim Gordon repeatedly recommended the band to DCG Records, and thanks to Kim's pushing, Nirvana was signed in 1990. DCG is the David Geffen Company, which is ultimately owned by Universal. So the band began to record Nevermind. They were offered a number of different producers to choose from, but ultimately held out for Butch Vig. Butch Vig performed, he formed the band Garbage, and he was their drummer. He then set up the Smart Studios and produced Smashing Pumpkins Gish, albums for the Goo Goo Dolls, Jimmy E. World, Sonic Youth, Urge Overkill, but he is most known as the Nevermind Man. So rather than recording at Vig's Madison studio, as they had in 1990, they shifted production to Sound City Studios in L.A. For two months, the band worked through a variety of songs in its catalog. Some of the songs, such as In Bloom and Breed, had been in Nirvana's repertoire for years, while others, including On a Plane and Stay Away, were unfinished until midway through the recording process. 
After the recording sessions were completed, Vig and the band set out to mix the album. However, mixer Andy Wallace was brought in to create the final mix. After the album's release, members of Nirvana were unhappy with the polished sound the mixer had given Nevermind. So in January of 92, the band played two songs from this new album, Nevermind, on Saturday Night Live. They played Smells Like Teen Spirit and Territorial Pissings. I remember that well, actually. Initially, DGC Records was hoping to sell 250,000 copies of Nevermind, which was about the same um, level of success they had achieved with uh, Sonic Youth's Goo. However, the album's first single, Smell Like Teen Spirit, as we now know, quickly gained momentum thanks in a very large part to MTV. Mm-hmm. So they sold out the 250,000 copies in a heartbeat. The band toured Europe in late 91, and they quickly found that their shows were dangerously oversold. Television crews were at every show, and Smells Like Teen Spirit was constantly on every radio station and all over the European MTVs. By Christmas of 91, Nevermind was selling 400,000 copies a week in just the U.S. Then, in January of 92, the album displaced Michael Jackson's Dangerous at number one on the Billboard charts and also topped the charts all over the world. The month that Nevermind reached number one, Billboard proclaimed, Nirvana is that rare band that has everything. Critical acclaim, industry respect, pop radio appeal, and rock-solid college alternative base the album would go on to sell over a million copies in the united states and over 30 million worldwide so at this point they're big stars and they're claiming that they are exhausted from touring mind you there are bands out there with guys twice and thrice their age that have been touring nonstop for 20 plus years and they're fine but your one year little european tour sounds exhausting So they decided to not do another American tour in support of Nevermind. They were going to do just select appearances instead. So in March of 1992, Cobain wanted to reorganize the group's songwriting royalties, which to this point had been split equally. He felt that since he wrote the majority of the music, he should get more than everyone else. Uh, Grohl and Chris did not object to this request, but when Cobain wanted the agreement to be retroactive to the release of Nevermind, then it became a problem and the band almost broke up. Don't blame them. But after a rough week of uh, intense negotiations, Cobain ended up receiving a retroactive share of 75% of the royalties. Feelings were soured and many say never really truly repaired. So there are rumors out there that the band was breaking up. Um, There were rumors about Cobain's health. And then Nirvana headlined the closing night of England's 1992 Reading Festival. Nirvana's performance at Reading is often regarded by the press as one of the most memorable of the group's entire career. A few days later, Nirvana performed at the VMAs, where despite the network's refusal to let the band play the new song Rape Me during the broadcast, and we talked about this on our MTV show, Um, They absolutely said you cannot play that song on the broadcast. Cobain uh, got up on stage and started singing the first few bars of the song before they broke into lithium. Uh, That night, the band received awards for the Best Alternative Video and Best New Artist. So their label had hoped to have a new Nirvana album ready to go, but work on the album was moving very slowly at this point. So the label released the compilation album Insecticide in December of 92 a joint venture between DGC and Sub Pop. 
Insecticide collected various rare Nirvana recordings and was supposed to provide the material for a better price and quality than all of the bootleg copies going around. So apparently there was a big problem with the bootlegs from the original demos and um, the original singles that they had done with Sub Pop. So the label decided it was not necessary to heavily promote insecticide, um, which was certified gold by the RIAA that following February. All right, February of 1993, Nirvana released Puss Oh the Guilt, a split single with the Jesus Lizard on their independent label. They recorded in utero after that. Several weeks after finishing the recording, stories ran in the press that claimed DCG considered the album unreleasable. Fans went nuts. They began to believe it was the label's fault. They were ruining the band. The band was going to break up because of the label. While these stories were untrue, the band actually was unhappy with certain aspects of the mix. They thought that Heart Shaped Box and All Apologies did not sound perfect. Longtime REM producer Scott Lilt was lit was called in to help remix those two songs, with Cobain adding additional instrumentation and backing vocals. In Utero debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 album chart in September of 93. There is a review in Time magazine by Christopher John Farley, who wrote, Despite the fears of some alternative music fans, Nirvana hasn't gone mainstream. Though this potent new album may once again force the mainstream to go Nirvana. End quote. In Utero went on to sell over 3.5 million copies in the U.S., that October, Nirvana went on their first U.S. tour in two years. November of 93, Nirvana recorded a performance for MTV Unplugged. The band wanted to do something different. They decided to stay away from playing its most recognizable songs. Instead, they performed several covers. They made their second appearance on Saturday Night Live, where they played Heart Shaped Box and Rape Me shortly after. So now it's 1994. The band toured Europe, and their final show took place in Munich. While in Rome, Cobain's wife found him unconscious in their hotel room, and he was rushed to the hospital. He had overdosed, and the rest of the tour was immediately canceled. In the weeks to follow, Cobain's heroin addiction resurfaced. The band, his family, and friends all staged an intervention. Cobain was convinced to admit himself into a rehab, but after less than a week, he checked himself out and returned to Seattle. And then just a week later... Sadly, on Friday, April 8th, 1994, my fucking birthday, Cobain was found dead at his home in Seattle. After his death, the rest of the band members and Cobain's wife formed a company to oversee and manage Nirvana's business. Although she later sued them, and then there was a settlement, then there was another suit. It was a big mess for many, many years. Then she wanted to sell her shares. Um, no matter, they were able to release several compilations um, and unheard music to fans, which was most important. In 2014, Nirvana was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. A music critic named Stephen Thomas 
Earl Wine, wrote that prior to Nirvana, alternative music was consigned to specialty sections of record stores, and major labels considered it to be, at the very most, a tax write-off. Following the release of Nevermind, nothing was ever quite the same, for better and for worse. The success of Nevermind not only popularized grunge, but also established the cultural and commercial viability of alternative rock in general. While other alternative bands had hits before Nirvana broke down those doors forever. Earlwine further stated that Nirvana's breakthrough didn't eliminate the underground, but just rather gave it more exposure. So I think this is a good time for a break. That is our backstory in the Wayback Machine of Nirvana. So now here we are at present day. Let's refill our glasses while the listeners enjoy a musical interlude. And we are back. All right, guys, let's talk about Nirvana. <laughs> Where shall we begin? Nirvana. So I guess I was in the uh, probably the prime age group when uh, Nirvana really hit the scene. This was like at the very end of my my college um, tenure when uh, Nevermind broke and it was... Like you, like you, you alluded to, it was massive. It was a massive hit. Everyone I knew had this album was listening to this album, uh, and it was such a departure from what we had normally been been listening to. It was something new and and fresh and exciting. The writing was like nothing we'd ever heard before. The only other artist I could probably compare to, to up until that point was probably you know Sid Barrett. From the original Pink Floyd, as far as being kind of out there in the uh, what you wrote about, I mean, you listen to the lyrics of the song, and it's a lot of nonsense, but it really doesn't matter because it was it was just good. I don't know what it was about it. Um, you could sing along to it; it didn't make sense, but it didn't really matter. So, I guess I think it was just a novelty at the time, and. I don't know, what do you guys think about the, uh, what were your impressions of the lyrics, the lyrical content, if you will, when this, this album first hit the scene? I was almost pretty much in your boat at that time when I first heard it. I was like, I have no idea what he's screaming about, but I love it. And yeah, that was basically it. I mean, I'm kind of consider myself an outlier because I was exposed to Bleach before I had heard anything from Nevermind. Okay. So I actually, you know, heard it almost in progression from the two albums, whereas most people, the majority of people would have heard Nevermind and then went backward. Mm -hmm. Uh, But both of my brothers had Bleach very early on. um, And I was listening to that very early. And that's one of those albums and one of these artists that, we all have them in our life where you hear it for the first time and then you say to yourself, what the fuck is that? I don't know what that is, but I fucking love it and I want more of it. So that was me with Nirvana, but I'm with you on the, on the lyrics, Ed, where it was just, I don't fucking care what he's singing about. Most of the time it didn't make sense, but I, I just was attracted to it 
I wanted I wanted more of it. So I've always had a difficult time with the discussion of Nirvana. Um, Matt, like you, I heard Bleach way before Nevermind. Um, I was in college, so I went to college at a very large university, and they had a great college radio station. Um, they were the ones that broke Nine Inch Nails, um, because Nine Inch Nails was also, it's a Cleveland, Ohio band. Um, so that's how I heard them. I had a friend who was really into that, just absolutely loved that album. And I remember thinking at the time, um, which is pretty damn astute of me, I'm surprised, but I do remember thinking, I can't tell what the fuck genre this is supposed to be. Um, and I still feel feel that way. I was listening to Bleach again, preparing for the show, and I'm just like, they are all over the place. They did not know who they were yet. They had not found their sound yet. It's it's madness. Every song sounds like it should be on a different album, and not I don't think in a good way. But I mean, there was something to them, you know. Of course, um, there was something about them that attracted people. They're very good with um, they're very good with hooks. They're very it's they can bring you noise, but feed it to you on a soft spoon. That's kind of what I always said about them. Um, when Nevermind came out, it was fucking ridiculous. And we had a lot less exposure than we do now. I can't imagine today what it would be like if something like that happened. I mean, it, it was just everywhere all the time. And the first thing I heard off Nevermind was Smells Like Teen Spirit. And it was the video. And I was like, oh, this is cool. Yeah, it's cool. I like this. Now, mind you, I'm heavy, heavy into thrash and metal at this point. I'm like a, I'm full on metalhead, um, you know, but I listen to a lot of other music. So I wasn't, and I, I don't know, I kind of immediately when Nevermind happened, just saw them kind of as a commercially created band, something that they had kind of stripped down, cleaned up, polished, put back together and threw it out for the masses. Of course, that's not what happened. But that's what it felt like to me. So I kind of um, turned my nose up to them a little bit. Uh, but before I go on, I want to give you guys a list of what was released. Um, so Nevermind was released September 24th, 1991. I want to tell you what else was released that year and very close to the September release. Bad Motor Finger by Soundgarden. 10 by Pearl Jam. Wretch by Kiss, Trompe Le Monde by The Pixies, The Pod by Ween, Pretty on the Inside by <coughs> Hole, The Black Album by Metallica, Blood Sugar Sex Magic by The Peppers, Gish by Smashing Pumpkins, Sailing the Seas of Cheese by Primus, Temple of the Dog, Butthole Surfers, Mr. Bungle. So... Here is my issue with the whole thing that's wrapped around Nirvana. I do not believe they are the godfathers of grunge. They were not the first to get there, and they were not the first to popularize it. Um, I, I, I think if you, take, if you take Gish and you put it, if I say, let's take the pod by Ween and Gish by Smashing Pumpkins and put that together with Nevermind, I think if... Bad Motorfinger had just been released a few months earlier. 
we wouldn't be talking about Nirvana as we are now. I truly believe that. I still think the record would have sold very well. I think it would be still selling today for sure. Um, but I don't think they would have had this. I don't know what it's. I don't know. I don't know. It was this Beatles esque craziness around See, them. But I, don't, I also don't think that at the time, their contemporaries, I, I, I don't think at the time that you could put Chris Cornell. I'm going to word this carefully here. I don't think at the time that you could put Chris Cornell and, say, Eddie Vedder on the same level as far as exposure goes with Kurt Cobain or with just that omnipresence that he had at the time. Well, that's what I mean. But that was, yeah. I think that was just, I think that was a fluke and supported by, I mean, look, Temple of the Dog came out the same year. So, you know, Cornell and, and What's-His-Face were already, they were already kind of cemented, you know, to be able to have Temple of the Dog come out and do what it did. Yeah. Um, I don't believe, I just, I don't know. I don't know why it is that Nirvana gets all the credit for grunge. That is my issue. That is where I take issue. Um, I was going to live music shows underground, above ground, whatever the fuck shows at the time, all the time. I didn't see the fanaticism in person that I saw, that it seemed to be later. I think it happened later. I think everyone looks back and goes, oh, never mind. You know, yeah. never, that's not, I don't think that's true. What happened was Nevermind came out with Bad Motor Finger, with 10. Are you kidding me? 10 was insanely popular. Pearl Jam was like, they were neck and neck. And then Gish by Smashing Pumpkins. I mean, yeah. their best selling album of all time. Are you fucking kidding me? This was all happening at the same time. Well, let's also not forget, um, granted, it was after, but just months after. You also had. Uh, Stone Temple Pilots releasing Core and right. Alice in Chains right. Dirt. Yes. Yes. You know, all around that same time. Yeah, that was after. But so, yeah. Shortly so after. I that's that's I have that's one of the problem lies is that you know and and Chris Cornell has said had said this many times that he felt that the 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 label held back Soundgarden. Um they held back the release of Bad Motor Finger. Interesting. Purposely, and um, I can see that. I can I can absolutely see that see that happening. But everyone likes to believe that Nirvana came out, Nevermind happened, and then the whole Seattle scene blew up. No, that's not how it fucking worked. Not at all. These bands were playing Seattle and getting signed just like Nirvana. Some of them before Nirvana actually. Mm -hmm. um, they were creating this opportunity for Nirvana to do what they did. So that's why I take issue with Nirvana getting all the credit. I think without all of these other bands that we just mentioned, you're not going to have Nirvana like Nirvana today. I guess I that's that's kind of what I'm saying. I I agree with you definitely, and to me anyway. I always felt that grunge was more of a, a, not so much a sound, but just a movement of bands that came out of a certain location that had mm -hmm. similar features. But none of those bands are, are similar to me. I'm sorry, but Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nirvana, to me, they're three different bands completely. completely. I think Pearl, I think Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, and Nirvana are very alike. In my opinion, they're very yeah. like. See, I, I always, so. I, I, I was, I was always of the mind that I could kind of 
compartmentalize and separate them a little bit. So that maybe that's why for me that grunge to me was not a particular sound, but just a, like I said, like a collection of bands that came out of the same area at the same time and a style more than an actual uh, a music influence a music genre oh, for sure it should yeah. have never been used as a music genre i mean yeah and the only reason they started calling it grunge is because they were saying the people looked grungy because we're just coming off the heels of all this glam rock and all this right. you know ev- everything was so and also the pop music at the time was so fucking polished everything was very glitzy and polished you know you're coming off the 80s um so you know thrash is really the original I don't know, you know, the original grunge, if you really want to be specific about it. Yeah, sure. You know, they yeah. were the first ones that were like, we're going to do new, I'm, I'm not going to bring classic rock into it, but, you know, new rock and roll that will be popular without having to be shiny and polished and look like, you know, fucking rock stars. We're just going to wear whatever the fuck we want. Well, okay, so those are the bands that these kids are, you know, are looking up to. And so they're, do- yeah, we're going to do that, too. We don't have to fucking dress up when we go on stage. We don't have to have a look. And that not having a look, sadly, <laughs> became a look. I, you know, I mean, I know that was part of, you know, Kurt Cobain. I can Im- I, I can kind of imagine how that would feel when you're you're trying to rile against the mainstream and conformity. And so you're just throwing on whatever shit you've got because you're a poor kid. And then the next thing you know, every teenager in America is wearing flannel shirts. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I think that, that, that's the kind of thing that drove him nuts. It did. Was, it did. Yeah. I, and, and I can understand that. If that's your statement that you're trying to make, like, fuck just be whatever, look like whatever, that's unimportant, and then everybody looks like you. I would (laughs) lose my fucking mind, you know, of that. Well, I mean, if you if you had if you had asked any of those bands at that time about grunge, they would have told you to go fuck yourself. Because not none of them like the label. No. Like no. Yeah. Well it's an improper I still think it's it's yeah, it's absolutely improper. Um you know, I think it was just rock of the late 80s and early 90s. Yeah. It wasn't metal. It wasn't glam. It wasn't thrash. It was just rock. It yeah, was rock it was. and roll of the time. That's really it. Um, so, I mean, that's really the only debate that I would that I think would happen here is that, you know, and I've had this discussion with, it seems like it's an age thing too. Like if you talk to people that, I mean, Matt, you're younger than me, but let's just say like four years younger than me, right? So they would have been in high school when I was in college, when Ed and I were in college when we first heard this. Those high school kids are going to hold on a lot tighter to the idea of grunge as music. And they're going to fight me on Nirvana are the godfathers of grunge. They created the scene or they're responsible for the scene, blah, blah, whatever. Not true. And that's where I I take issue. I've never thought of them in that way because to me all these bands kind of came onto the scene around the same time stone temple pilots allison chains nirvana Soundgarden. it was almost like they were collectively responsible for the popularity of this uh genre of music if you want to call it that but to the Um, average person you ask them you ask the average person, grunge, what's the first thing they're going to say? I, I, 
every time. Maybe. Sure. That's, that's where that term Godfathers and, of Grunge came from. I didn't make it up. You and know? I, I find it interesting that, you know, not to get off Nirvana too much, but that you put maybe the age is showing here, but you put Smashing Pumpkins in with that group. Because to me, and I don't know what they released. I'm not really familiar with what they released pre-94. So to me, what they released from 94 after, I kind of put them in like that that post-grunge sort of uh, purgatory with pa- bands like, um, you know, Live and Bush, maybe even, to go out on a stretch. Oh, God, no. Foo, Foo Fighters, yeah. Sort no. of that po- post-grunge rock sound. But like I said, I'm not familiar with what they were doing in the early 90s, late 80s. So to me, they're always like 94 after. Well, yeah, in the 90s, you know, early 90s. Seems like um, that album. Smashing Pumpkins were, I went to college in um, northern Illinois, you know, in the Chicago area. And so they, Smashing Pumpkins were known as a local band Mm -hmm. back in that, in the early Mm -hmm. 90s. And so I probably heard about uh smashing pumpkins just through the college scene around chicago before most of the country mm-hmm. had even discovered who they were because yeah that was around 1991 i think was when i first heard about 91 is when gish gish came out yes yeah, um, never, never heard that album their demos were being played on college radio stations long before gish came out so same with you ed i was you know, God love college radio stations, I tell you. <laughs> Seriously. Um, I was exposed to them uh, because of their demos that were being played. I think they even played a show um, on, you know, on our strip near campus at Ohio State. Um, before I was definitely before Gish. Um, so I, 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 I grouped them in because I think it's the same. They're rock of the time. They're, right. Gish comes out at the same time Nevermind comes out. They're, they're doing a similar thing. I don't, why would I, I wouldn't separate them. Just like yeah. the whole Seattle band shit. Why separate that? The fuck does that have to do with anything? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't get that separation either with the Seattle. So it just so happened that a couple of the bands that were big at the time, you know, came from Seattle. Whoop do fucking do? Well, Jimi Hendrix came from Seattle. So what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, there's people that come from. I just would have never thought whatever the lump, fuck Arkansas to lump, to lump them in with that group. That's all. I'm oh, saying. they were ab- they were absolutely yeah. lump- because because again, so you're watching "Smells Like Teen Spirit" video on the next song. The next video will be for Gish, one of the songs off of Gish. At the same time, they are mm-hmm. both. I think Smashing Pumpkins did uh, Saturday Night Live right after Nirvana did. They're doing the same things at the same exact time. They were mm-hmm. like neck and neck. For the for the next couple couple years, I think, don't you think, Ed? Yep. Because they released I'm... Siamese Dream in 1993. Yep. And I mean, and then M- Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness in '95, and then Adore in '98. They were huge from yeah, long Siamese, after Nirvana. Siamese Dream is, I think, when they really they really hit it big. Yeah. See, I'm not as far up... as the mainstream consciousness. Yeah, I'm like '95 and on with them. Oh yeah, no, that's no, that's they... the Smashing Pumpkins I know, unfortunately. So. so Gish, so I am the one was off of Gish.
being played on MTV, like I said, constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, they were, they were, like I said, neck and neck with with Nirvana at the time. So you would have heard that constantly. And then by the time Siamese Dream came out in 1993, they had really surpassed them. Not just because of the death of Cobain, but they had surpassed them with Today and Cherub Rock. I mean, good lord. Well, I will put me, it on my must-listen to list. Gish is a fucking great album. I, I think it's a fantastic album. But again, it's a similar sound to me. Um, just like Temple of the Dog is mm-hmm. a similar sound, too. It's a little softer, but it's similar. Um, I think the pod by Ween deserves to be in there as well. Um, but, you know, alternative music was was happening already. And so aside from the whole grunge discussion, there's they they are... Be, it said that they're responsible for alternative music having a category. That's not true either. No. No. A, a lot of these they bands... They were a I, big player in it, but sure. they weren't the reason. The category was already there. It was alternative was already a word that was being used, just like prog rock back in the day. You know, They didn't know how to classify the new rock that was coming out, so progressive rock, prod rock, prog rock. I think it's just the fact that people need to have someone to point to to say they're the ones who started it. Whether or not it's true, I think that's what people like to do. People like to point to Black Sabbath and say they're the ones that, yeah, you know, were the fathers of heavy metal or mm-hmm. or whatever. Every mm-hmm. genre, everyone wants to be able to say, oh, this is the band that started it all. Whether or not that was true is another thing. I think ultimately my view of Nirvana is they were they were they're a good rock band that can make catchy songs. Um, they can make their their weirdness palatable, but you're not talking about excellent music musicianship here. You're you're not even talking about excellent songwriting skills here. I if you really sit down and listen to these albums and break them apart. Um, I don't understand the, the, the madness about them that still exists, the, the adoration and, you know, someone put Cobain on a top guitar list once and I was like, what the fuck? He would even say himself, he didn't even know how to play the guitar. guitar. (laughs) You know, I'm not saying that he wasn't a good guitar player, but he certainly doesn't belong on one of these top guitarist lists. Um, I think after Nevermind for me, I think Nevermind is kind of where they found their they found their stride. Mm-hmm. Um, but if In Utero was the direction they were going in, no thanks. In in my in my opinion, um, to me, Nirvana kind of begins and ends with Nevermind. I think so too. I think so. That's too. That's what I've always thought. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think In Utero is a great album. That's just me. I would have loved to see what they would have done next, whether it be a progression or a degression. Clearly, in your mind, it was a degression. Yeah. When when so it was uh, Heart Shaped Box that was the the breakout single yeah. that was released first from that album, and I just remember at first it was I was like, oh, this is an interesting song, and then literally I was like. I, I can't, it's so annoying the song by the end of it it's so if he says hey wait I've got a new complaint one more time I'm oh. gonna fucking I'm gonna find him and kill him myself 
I mean, it just was like... All right, he may have gone one or two choruses too long on that one. Oh, you you think? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Rape Me? Meh. Didn't really get it. Um, I don't know. I just didn't. And All Apologies was so whiny. I mean, you have Polly on that one, too, which I like. what, What do you like about it? I don't oh, get it. Sketchy song. I'm probably thinking more of like the unplugged version of the song, which I liked more. But I mean, still like the album. It's not Nevermind. It's not even Bleach to me because I actually happen to like Bleach. That chaos that you talked about before, I actually kind of dug it, where they were kind of all over the place and supposedly it was he so all over he the place. supposedly I mean the story goes he wrote all the lyrics the night before or on the way to the studio or whatever is the is the. Uh, the legend or the story that he says when he was asked about it. But um, I, I don't know, man. It's just they, like I said, it's one of those things where you hear it and you're like, what the fuck is this? But you can't stop listening to it. So, and they've always, yeah. when they come on my mix, I'm always turning it up a little bit. I always felt that Bleach was just all over the place, musically, lyrically. I mean, fuck the lyrics even. It's just every song sounds like they're trying out different styles. To me, it bleaches a demo tape. Here's what we can do. Here's 50,000 songs of what we think we can do. Pick, pick yeah. one style well, and we'll do that. That's kind of my feeling about Bleach. At the time, you know, they didn't... I don't think they re- really identified with any particular style. He, Kurt Cobain just wrote. He came up with stuff in his head. He wrote. And um, it was what it was, whatever he was feeling at the time. And I know he's had a lot of lot of issues. He may be up one day, write a very lighter poppy song, and down the next day, and he'll write a more harder, more melancholy song. And I, I'd like to think that that probably played a little bit into it. For sure, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as you've got a thread, though those songs and they comprise a well put together album you know just you know a compilation of, of songs does not make an album and I just think that you know no no diss to them but they just it, it you can tell they're trying to find themselves right. and exactly. and and trying to figure out what they're going to play what they want to play what they like playing what sounds good what doesn't sound good um, I think it's very apparent in that album but you know, you hear people say a lot, quite angrily, Nirvana is so overrated. And I don't think it's that they're overrated as a band, because obviously they hit a nerve with the world musically. I think what happens is they spe- get... Or, I don't want to hate to derail your thought, but more specifically, I think they hit a nerve with Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. That was a smart fucking single to release first. My God. Um, But I think separate them from this bullshit grunge thing. Stop calling them godfathers of really anything. And I think you'll find less. I think you'll find people more willing to say, okay, musically, you know, they were, you know, they, they did some interesting stuff and their stuff is of quality. So I think that's where, because I have been polling my friends and people I know recently, as I know this is coming up, because I've gotten into some heated, heated discussions about this very band. Mm. Um, and and I, th- I think once I'm able to separate 
the whole grunge thing and the whole them starting or creating anything, you, people will soften to them and kind of take the band on their own merits of their own albums instead of are they responsible for this whole, you know, this whole grunge thing. Um, certainly, Kurt Cobain's writing was, effect- was affected by his mental state. Um, we've discussed this a lot as well on the show. For me, when people get healthy and well, often that's the end of their ability to make really interesting and intriguing good music any longer um, because they're happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Trent Reznor said it himself. He was afraid to get therapy for many, many years because he thought he would lose his his creativity and his edge. And yeah. that's fair. You know, I mean, there we've seen many of examples it. of it. Yeah, yeah everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, you know, I think it's a fucking shame that he died so young. I think it's a fucking shame, you know, that he took his own life and that his wife was a fucking batshit crazy is a batshit crazy lunatic. And, you know, that he's got a daughter out there who had to grow up without her father And, you know, that millions of fans worldwide were left to, you know, mourn their beloved star or whatever. Um, It was very, it was a very strange thing to witness at the time. Every, I mean, news channels broke into regular programming to say that he had been found dead. I remember thinking, who, it's just a, like, really? He's just a musician. Like, he doesn't even comb his hair and we're breaking into regular pro. I don't think I had realized that he, they had really become that important. And then the news coverage continued all week long, you know, interviewing the hordes of people, you know, mostly teenagers coming to put flowers at the gates of his house and, you know, stupid Courtney loves sitting outside mm-hmm. talking to them. And, mm-hmm. and then the, the amount of documentaries that are out there who oh killed gosh. Kurt Cobain. Oh my God. It's like an Elvis. It's gonna, I think it's yes. like, it's like He's, their generation's the, the Elvis. closest thing that you can get to it. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Right. Elvis yeah. or uh, Jimi Hendrix. He's up there with all those rock stars who died young. Who died too young. He's, people don't he's in believe. the conversation. Yeah. yeah. With all Absolutely. these other ones too. Yeah. I mean the conspiracy theories. So I was gonna, I was started to just look up a few and damn, that was a rabbit hole that I was not willing to go down. Oh, yeah. Holy shit. I mean, I thought I knew, but I didn't really know the amount of content there is out there that are conspiracies about, you know, Courtney Love killing him and he's not really dead. And oh, just it's some of the shit is fucking insane. There's conspiracies out there that Dave Grohl killed him because he wanted to start <laughs> the Foo Fighters. Oh my God. And wanted to push Kurt out of the way and like it's all fucking ridiculous of course but um Netflix had a documentary for a while did you see that one no it was like no. <laughs> really so somebody i don't know who paid for this private investigator spent a year or even more maybe 2 years tailing Courtney Love and like trying to be an insider because they really believe she was responsible for his death and it's just fucking bizarre. Like he he got a hold of like um, answering machine recordings, like some of their phone conversations, just like 
bizarre shit and he's telling it so seriously he's like and then on thursday the 28th i managed to get to the hotel room. it's fucking bonkers so people you just need to stop okay like just just stop with the fucking let him go seriously let it go let it go go. come on now uh i'm curious though sailor to ask your opinion on the well received unplugged album that they did for mtv um yeah it was probably one of the smartest things they did in their career um they definitely utilized the unpluggedness of that show and uh yeah i think that was i think that was probably their best work to be Mm. completely honest better than everything else they've ever done i agree with you yeah um i think that and i watched it again in prepping for the show two weeks ahead of time because i messed up the calendar but (laughs) yeah we talked about that last week. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> um, and watching it, um, to me, my overwhelming thought of it was that it was a man performing that had already resigned himself to leaving this earth. And I never thought that before watching it. And then I watched it again, and I watched him, and there's just something there. As amazing as the performance is, and it's by far his best work, uh, I've seen other live performances, and they don't touch that performance. But it's just there's something there that just is screaming out, "I'm done," just with everything. And wasn't long before, you know, that wasn't long before he actually killed himself. So you're talking a span of half a year, maybe. No, his... I. Yeah. Go ahead, Ed. Now his overdoses. I know he had more than one. Did oh, any yeah. of those happen before the unplugged recording? Oh yeah, he had several. He had yeah, 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 yeah. all the so, time. But the one See, that was right before his death was like it was probably a couple weeks before his death, right? In Rome was the one. The big one that got all the publicity. That was the big overdose, yeah. yeah. So he so he passed away April eighth of nineteen ninety four and this MTV unplugged album was released in November of ninety four. Mm-hmm. Um See, I looked at it completely different because I went back and watched it also. And I remember thinking the same thing at the time. I saw a guy who was so happy to not have to be a rock star. He was just able to sit down and kind of play and just play music in his own way. Mm. I think that's what I saw was him being probably the most comfortable I've ever seen him be. He was not comfortable in his skin being a rock star. And I think that, and he would say that repeatedly, that's what he felt like he had to be when he was on stage, um, when he was performing. And here it looked like I get to just be Kurt Cobain, the person, and play music for a very intimate audience. We're just a bunch of people here hanging out, playing music, you know. And I don't know if you've ever been to a filming of a television show. It's, it's you know, it gets very intimate because there's a lot of breaks, there's a lot of pauses in between, you know, you actually get to interact, depending on how small the studio is, you know, with the people that are on stage or whatever, it may be the host of the show. Um, I don't know, I just saw him as very, very comfortable. And the, uh, maybe I should reword how I said it. He definitely was comfortable, and he definitely looked like he was enjoying what he was doing, but he almost looked too comfortable to me it was almost like that was the one thing he wanted to do 
And then almost after that show, he was like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I'm over it. Like, yeah, I agree with you on that aspect where it was him being him. But uh, I just see undertones there of just a man that is he's just resigned to just being done. Just, yeah, I just you know? I think you're just seeing someone that has mental health issues and drug yeah, addiction yeah, well, issues. Well, I mean, I, I mean, mean, I think you would see. I think I think looking back and seeing that is is very much looking back because you know he's going to die shortly after. I think that's a lot of speculation. I, I mean, who knows? Well, Nobody clearly, knows. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> nobody knows why he committed suicide. You know what really led to it? Yeah. But he was a troubled, troubled, troubled individual. But for me, I always saw it as probably you know it it's. It, he just looks comfortable in his element. Like he's finally comfortable in his own skin. He's finally doing it the way he wanted to do it. You know, he's he's playing covers of some of his favorite songs. Um, you know, he's he's you can see him synergizing really well with the guys in the band. Oh yeah. He's talking to the he's talking to the people in the audience very comfortably. And he was not comfortable with that often. He was very, very shy. He was very much an introvert. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, not, I see it the opposite. I, I mean, I'm kind of happy that they went off the grid with that because I don't think it would have been at anywhere near as good if they did the songs that MTV wanted them to do. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I'm happy so, they stuck to their guns. I am too. And obviously it was the right decision because it won a Grammy award for the oh, best yeah. alternative music album in 1996 and, uh, debuted at number one on the billboard charts. And certified platinum five times. And I don't think it was all because of his death. I do think that album would have done really, really well without his death. Now, is that the highest selling live album of all time? I think it's it was. It's got to be up there. I yeah. thought it was at the time, but I don't think it is anymore. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. Oh, you know what? Probably, probably Michael Jackson's the one where, you know. We can put it. Yeah, died. we yeah. can we can put it in the show notes because yeah. I I honestly can't remember. Um, I, I, I remember hearing something about that, but I'm not sure. Um, you will investigate. Yes. So that was not the, the debate I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I thought we were going to argue a lot more. <laughs> no, because I mean, I and I was figuring that the debate would have been between me and you because I do love them and they're a huge part of my life growing up in music. Um, but, you know, we pretty much see eye to eye on everything except Bleach, but that's yeah. fine. Well, yeah, I mean, that's fine. That's taste fine. is Taste is subjective, just like with whiskey. That's right. It, exactly. It cannot be argued. And that's why we have this show. Round All and right. round we go. <laughs> well, that was a interesting discussion, and... Uh, a nice departure from the normal format. Um, So hopefully all our listeners, if you enjoyed this show, you will continue to join us for future episodes of the metal rock and whiskey podcast. Um, But before we get out of here, is there anyone who would like to talk about what they've been listening to lately or watching? I've been obsessed with the serial podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with serial. Oh, so good. I like it for breakfast. (laughs) <laughs> hilarious that's stupid s-e-r-i-a-l <laughs> yeah hashtag you're stealing ed's dad jokes <laughs> um it's so it's i don't want to it's hard to explain i don't want to you can give a lot away but the first season 
um, this reporter followed, it's an NPR podcast, followed a young man who was on, I think, he, yeah, he's he's got life in prison for killing his girlfriend while he was in high school. And um, it the podcast actually helped to have a retrial for this kid. And uh, there, I think there's going to be another, I have a feeling one day this kid's going to get out of prison and it's all because of that podcast. It, uh-huh. they, they go very, they literally spend years on each season investigating and getting content. Fucking fascinating. And so now this season they're on, they're talking about the criminal justice system and they station themselves in um, a Cleveland courthouse. It's called the Center for Justice, I believe, for over a year. And um, they're kind of giving you a snapshot of all of these various cases and how they go through the court systems and how they work. And it's it's mind-blowing. You know, a lot of things that are revealed that, that people that are in it, that work in it or are involved in it, think are just the norm. I don't think they realize how abnormal it sounds to a lay person and how it doesn't seem like there's much, much justice being handed out these days to a lay person. Um, but it also, you learn a lot about uh, criminal justice. So it's very, very interesting. It's not salacious. It's not gossipy. It's not, you know, ooh, storytelling. Mm. It's very, very fact-based, which is very interesting. And the host does a phenomenal job of really letting her characters portray themselves, which I think is a very difficult thing to do when you're an investigative journalist, you know, keeping your, your own shit out of it your own opinions, you know, your own take and views on things. So check it out. Serial. It's super awesome. All right. Sounds cool. Well, well Matt, any, any good wrestling podcasts you've been listening to lately? Well, that's all I've been listening <laughs> to, but I can't keep, I can't keep beating that drum keep every week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can't, can't keep beating that drum, but, and I would talk about some cool movie trailers I saw, but you guys don't like movie trailers, so I can't really talk about that. There's no, we are not talking one, about those. One la, movie la, trailer la. I won't watch. No, I won't watch any of them. I'll see. You, I don't go that far. It's only Star Wars movie trailers I avoid. It ruins every fucking movie, though, because they give you all the best parts, and you see the movie, and you're like, oh, that was it? I already saw this. <laughs> I'm not into it. Don't spoil me with the fucking movie trailers, Matt. All I'll say is that there is hope. There is oh hope. my god! Shut the fuck up! Why do what, you have to all, do that? What, why am I saying that? Don't that say can, anything. That could mean so many different things. It could mean so many different things. But obviously, it's not a new hope. No. Uh-huh. It should be called. <laughs> it should be called any hope at all. I'll take. Oh, for fuck's sake! <laughs> I'll take any Stop hope it. you want to give me. <laughs> yes. As long as it doesn't have Jar Jar Binks, I'm I'm okay. <laughs> well, not in the trailer, so that's fine. <laughs> Thank God for that. That's yeah. the only thing you're allowed to tell me. Is there Jar Jar Binks in it? No. no. Okay, good. No, we're I'm good. good. I'm happy. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, other than that, it's been wrestling podcasts and really nothing else. I mean, honestly, I'm getting near the end of my semester here, so it has all been. Homework and papers and programming and, and finals and crazy stuff. Sounds like garbage. Do you guys like cooking shows at all? Oh, I don't. No? 
There's one particular guy. Um, this isn't new. I've followed him for a while on YouTube. Shut up about Guy Sam, <laughs> Sam the Cooking Guy. He's uh, out of San Diego. an original name, Sam the Cooking Guy. Yeah, and uh, it's, I, I like watching because he just makes stuff, like regular stuff that any one of us could make. And he uh, either is shoots out of his kitchen or out of his backyard on his patio. And um, and he's very plain in his language. He's not a, afraid to let a cuss word slip here or there, even though <laughs> his, his it's a very, very, uh, very good production on his show. But he's just very real, you know, and he I just enjoy watch, watching him. So even if you're not really into cooking shows, you might want to check him out because uh, he is pretty entertaining. I don't think I've watched a cooking show since uh, like the Muppet Show when Swedish Chef was making shit. I think that was like the only cooking show I actually enjoyed. <laughs> I used to watch the um I think I watched the first season of Hell's Kitchen and I was just like it just stressed me out so much oh, God. and I was like yelling at the TV and I just thought I can't why am I watching something that's stressing me out so hard so I stopped watching that then Master Chef came out and I was like oh this seems nice you know and then that got ruined What's the one that where the guy like introduces the ingredient and he gets all like He's like, today's ingredient is... Oh, oh that's... that's Iron, Chef. Iron, oh, Iron Chef. Iron Chef, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I watched yeah. a couple of those, too. That was kind of entertaining. Oh, Iron... I used to love Iron Chef back in the day. The I Japanese version. For, yeah. yeah. Oh, the Japanese version's way better. Yes. Yeah, but it's like, they'll make these ingredients that are like, today's ingredient is pineapple, a bologna sandwich, and chocolate. And you have to do something like fucking exquisite with it. Actually, you know, the thing is, is it it it, it didn't, wasn't that ridiculous, but um, it introduced, I think, a Western audience into a lot of ingredients that we had ne- were not familiar with, like shark's fin soup and mm-hmm. natto For and a good squid reason. Ink. We shouldn't be eating and, fucking shark's well, fin soup. No, we shouldn't. Terrible. But I'm just has to use that as an example. <laughs> but um, anyway, <laughs> so but now a lot of these things, there's sushi, a sushi restaurant on like every corner, practically. Ivory. Oh, that's not how sushi. And, that's not what made then, sushi popular. You kidding me? Maybe in that, maybe I, where that, you live, I say it made it popular. Oh, I you thought you meant that it made it popular. No, knife. You can't listen to that. I was saying it. It was took it took place at a time before sushi was popular. Not that it popularized sushi. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, so the Japanese every, every show. Every time yeah. they would come on the TV, we would, what the hell is this? What are they doing? You know, this was back in the the late nineties, I want to say. And now, like I said, you can't go two blocks in a major city without going by either a Starbucks or a sushi joint. I do not like the American version of that show. I prefer the Japanese version. The American version just got ridiculous. It was a little ridiculous. I take back what I yeah, I think back what I said before. There was a short-lived show on MTV for a while called Snack Off, where it was basically the premise of that was like if you're if you're if you yeah, snack off. If you if you're drunk and you come home and you have no food (laughs) and you have no food in your fridge, but you're fucking starving and you find like random ingredients and throw them together like what you could make out of those. So it was like that. So like you'd have popcorn, cold pizza and Chinese food. It's like, those are your ingredients. That what can you make delicious. out of that? 
You, ha- you put the Chinese food and the popcorn on top of the pizza, and you're for there you go. I mean, that's, that's a no-brainer. basically what it was. And Fuck yeah, that sounds after amazing. The, after the first season, they were supposed to release a cookbook of the winning recipes, and I haven't been able to find it because I'm like, oh, damn, damn I'm super interested in that. <laughs> Snack off. That I love the name. Snack too. off. Yeah. 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 One season it lasted like seven or eight episodes. Now, did they have to be drunk when they did it? <laughs> no, I guess it was based on. I don't know what it was based on, but it was that was the premise of the show. You know, you come home drunk from being out and you're hungry and you have to make something out of nothing, basically. Oh, okay. It'd be yeah. it'd be it'd be funnier if they. It had would to be, be a lot funnier if they were drunk. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um. So let's see. It's on. It's on Facebook. It's on Amazon Prime Video. But the book, there's nothing about the book. Unfortunately, that's what I'm saying. Like it, the I feel like the pilot episode they mentioned it, and then they never mentioned it again after that. I mean, that's probably a cookbook I would buy. What about I wanted to buy it. I was like, oh, I wonder when the book's I wonder when the season's gonna be over so they can make the book. Snack off digital cookbook. Oh. Wait a minute. Here. Oh please God. Because I gave up after a while. <laughs> oh please God. Yeah, it says check out some of the best recipes of the show. It's free. Get in my mm. jelly. I can't even <laughs> read what this says. <laughs> Ground beef, bacon, cheddar cheese, salt. Pepper, jelly beans, vanilla, and marshmallow. Oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> that was a that was a winning. You had me until you got that's to the jelly beans. Fucking puke. Well, yeah, the rest of it is just like normal, but I don't know how you get. I don't know how this thing works. I don't know. <laughs> but there you go, Matt. <laughs> I'm all over that. I'm all over that. Awesome. You made my night. <laughs> we'll we'll keep you updated on all of the things that Matt makes from the Snack Off Digital Cookbook. Yes. <laughs> all right, moving along. Dear listeners, we have a Patreon page that we would love for you to visit. You can get lots and lots of goodies and handwritten love letters from me, Sailor, to you. Or maybe they will be serial killer ransom notes. Or maybe a John Doe note. Who knows? Become a Patreon and find out. And to all of our listeners, our fellow metal rock and whiskey obsessors, we value your opinions and your feedback. Please find us on Instagram at Metal Rock Whiskey. Send us your love, your likes, and please share your thoughts, reviews, questions, suggestions, concerns, and comments about the show. You can also follow us individually on Instagram. Yours truly, at the Whiskey Obsessor. That is Whiskey, save the E. You can find Ed. me. No, me. <laughs> follow me I on always Instagram at Bourbon Geek. <laughs> Sailor. Yeah, but Ed goes next. <laughs> you can find me at Sailor Retro. <laughs> all right well this was a lot of fun guys hope you all enjoyed it as much as we did but now my glass is empty goodbye chef's collaboration it is time to go be sure to tip your waitress and we are out Happy Lars. bye later everyone i'm so lonely that's okay shave my head and i'm not sad and just me I'm too 